Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome a longtime friend, Joni Spizo, President of UCLA Health, CEO of the UCLA Hospital System, and Associate Chancellor of UCLA Health Sciences. Before joining UCLA, Joni spent 22 years at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she was Chief Health System Officer and Vice President of Medical Affairs. I've enjoyed many visits to Seattle and to Los Angeles over the years and have spoken with her governing boards and leadership teams. Jonice, thanks so much for being with us. Well, Tom, thank you for having me this morning, and thank you and Vizient for hosting these great sessions. You know, we can't get started without taking a minute to congratulate you on UCLA's recent ranking in U.S. News and World Report on its honor roll. Can you point to one or two things that have changed at UCLA that contributed to that rise, and maybe what factors most helped to make that happen? Well, thank you, Tom. And yes, we were pleased this year when the rankings came out in August that UCLA was once again number one in Los Angeles, number one in California, and had risen to number three on the honor roll in the nation. So first and foremost, I would like to thank our faculty, staff, students and trainees, and everyone who works at UCLA Health System for their amazing work that really led to these rankings. And it's really a reflection of the great work that they do 24-7 in providing the best care to our patients and families. When I think about these rankings, though, and really any other rankings, because as you know, we like other AMCs also participate in the Vizient rankings every year, our CMS rankings, LeapFrog rankings, in addition to U.S. News and World Report. And what I would say is, particularly with U.S. News and World Report, as we've now, that methodology has evolved and it's moved past what it used to be decades ago of really just reputational scores. It really has embedded the quality, safety, service, and access, high-performing measures. And now this next year, we'll also have a health equity measure, which I'm really thrilled about. So for us, we tend to really stay focused on delivering our patient safety and performance improvement plan. So we're not really chasing rankings. We're really chasing our own improvement so that each year we continue to improve benchmarking not only nationally, but also against ourselves. And it really begins with that overall goal of how do we achieve an organization that provides zero harm to patients. And our performance improvement and patient safety plan really describes our path for our staff, what we are doing in a systematic way to really support the mission, vision, values, and philosophies of the health system and provide that best possible care to patients and eliminate harm. We really also like to do that with the lens of the patient in mind and how we do that in a way that really honors the trust of our patients and family and community and continuously strive to deliver perfect care through excellence in quality safety service, affordability, and equity. So we have a path that is really led every year through our chief medical and quality officer and involves the management teams across our four hospitals and 200 clinics in Los Angeles and Southern California. And we share that in a very transparent way. 
One of the things that we've had really for the past five years, we have something that's called a movers dashboard, if you will. And we specifically look at mortality, which is the M in movers, outcomes, the value that we're providing through value-based care, the experience of the patient and family, and then the quality measures like readmission. So we have that and it's looked at monthly, it's reviewed. It's something that not only all of our staff are involved with, but also our clinical department chairs, because we really need the leadership from the departments as well to achieve on those goals. So every year when the rankings come out, we're always kind of wondering, okay, what are we going to look like this year? But we usually have a pretty good idea because each month we're looking at those same measures that are driving not only the U.S. News and World Report rankings, but the Vizient rankings, the LeapFrog rankings. And I will say we've relied really on Vizient to really lead us through those quality, safety, and service rankings, the ability to benchmark against other academic medical centers, the ability to really drill down and look at centers that are like us, high-volume transplant centers, high-volume cancer care, and say, how do we continue to improve? And really sharing the ideas and lessons that we've learned with our peers has been really invaluable. You and I both remember fondly a a colleague who's now uh, CEO at Bay State, Mark Kerouac, who was a physician leader at what was the University Health System Consortium. Mark used to think of this kind of like uh, the Olympics, where he once kind of famously said, everybody in the current Olympics broke a prior world record and then came in almost last. So one of the things about these quality measures is that everybody is working on it, and you can't just stand still without losing ground. Isn't that true? Tom, that is so true. I mean, it couldn't be more true. Every year, right, we're pushing and working harder, and so is every other organization. We see that every year, even with our Vizient rankings and our scorecard on that, which we see each year, once a year, we see who's moving up. And we know that we can't ever really just sit back and rest on our achievements. Each day, it has to be moving that plan forward. And so every year here at UCLA Health, we raise the bar. So on things we achieve the next year, that bar is set higher. And we all have to continue to do that to really get to where we are really organizations that are not only zero harm, but really providing the best care to our patients in a way that is kind, compassionate, and really includes their participation in that plan of care. And I think, again, one of the areas where we have so much work to do ahead is on that whole health equity piece, right? We've seen that with the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen the disproportionate amounts of deaths and disabilities that have occurred in our communities of color. So for us, we're really looking at this next year, how do we really push that health equity measure forward? particularly in a city like Los Angeles with 10 million people, which is a very diverse city, geographically very difficult to get to service areas in some parts of the city. How do we really make a more meaningful difference on the health equity piece? And I think that's really a call to action for all academic medical centers throughout the country. You know, you mentioned patient focus. That's a perfect segue into another question that I intended to ask you. You've led two research-oriented academic medical centers, both ranking very highly in the National Institutes of Health in both the University of Washington and now UCLA. 
balancing the priorities between research and patient care at these sorts of places is no easy task. How do you make sure that the patients and their families are at the center of the enterprise's focus when so much attention naturally goes into research? That's such a great question. And, you know, I have had the privilege of working at two amazing research organizations, the UW Medicine for 22 years. And now here at UCLA Health, I've been here for five years. And the amount of research and discovery that's taking place in our health system and in our David Geffen School of Medicine and in our seven research institutes and themes is really unbelievable and exciting. I mean, when I look at the work done, you can really sit back and say, you know, I think we are going to see cures for cancer in our lifetime, right? We're already seeing so much promise with that. So that piece, I think, is really what inspires us in the clinical setting to say, we are going to have the opportunity to continue to do better and relieve suffering and really care for patients in a way that allows them to really have meaningful life and really survival that didn't exist years ago. But in an organization that is complex as an AMC and with all of the whole research structure as well, at times it can feel like it's segregated away from patients and it's something that's done in a lab. So what we've tried to do here at UCLA Health is we've really tried to bridge that translation from bench to bedside through several major efforts. So one of the things we did about five years ago, we started a innovation center within the health system. So I have someone who serves as really our chief innovation officer to really lead some of the bench to bedside translation of new therapies, new technologies that are coming forward, as well as to really put together a whole biodesign program so that we can work with the amazing ideas from our clinical staff, our physicians, our nurses, our therapist, our pharmacist, on ideas that they're seeing. And we really have a whole supportive process through biodesign that we call it a startup in a box. We're allowed to really navigate them through from the idea all the way through commercialization if it's something that can go forward. And I will say we've received a lot of philanthropic support for these areas. We're an institution that, you know, every year spins out many companies, many new drugs, many new technologies. And in the past, we really just focused that on physicians. Now we've really expanded it to all members of the healthcare team. I'm so excited about a lot of the great ideas that nursing has brought forward. And I think what that also does is brings in the lens and the voice of the patient. We have patient and family advisory councils at each of our facilities, and we have one as well for our innovation program. So they can tell us really areas where they feel we need to do better. And it also gives us a chance to communicate with them early on on the things that we're thinking about in design and in development. I will say then one final thing on that. I think now more than ever in what we've gone through with COVID, if anything, it's a phenomenal opportunity for the public to see the value of their investment in research, right? Because we were 
really, you know, able to very rapidly develop our own COVID-19 test, participate in all three vaccine trials, participate in the monoclonal antibody trial and all the new drug trials. We were able to bring those things faster to the bedside than ever before. So I'm hoping this really translates into increased funding for research, increased funding for public health, and the things that we need to navigate future pandemics in healthcare. That's an excellent point. Did I hear you right? Are some of your philanthropic dollars going not for the traditional kind of building with someone's name on it, but for these translational processes? Yes. And I would say, I think what is so exciting, and particularly as we see some of the new philanthropic efforts of our community, they really want to partner with us to change the world. So we're seeing less and less around just bricks and mortar without that intelligence and innovation inside, right? What they want to see is we want to help you move this science forward to really make a meaningful difference in care and in the lives of our community. So they're really looking to fund the innovation and the ideas that allows us to go forward. And I think that has been such an exciting time. And it also, it holds us accountable into really showing the public why we're their best investment for those dollars, right? On what we can do and what the deliverables are through research. So the ability to do things fast and quickly and show that meaningful change, I think your next dollars are really contingent on having that work fast. And again, for academic institutions, we know we have complex processes, we have institutional review boards, other things. We've been working on the infrastructure piece as well to say, how can we have this move forward so that we can really compete, particularly on the commercialization side, with private industry? That's very exciting. Let's shift gears for a quick second. You know, you're you're no stranger to having operated in health systems. I'm uh, familiar with your experience up in Seattle, obviously, and and now in Los Angeles. But you know, not just on the West Coast, but all across the country, we've had a couple decades now of mergers and acquisitions that have led, in my mind, they've led to size, but I'm not quite sure that they've led to genuine systemness. We still see enormous uh, clinical variation within health systems. We see program and facility redundancy. And in my mind, a troubling prevalence of low-volume surgical programs. Why do you think we've struggled so much as an industry to consolidate these real systems, to have them consolidate their clinical programs and to reduce variation? Yes, Tom, I think that's the billion dollar question for us, right? And I've worked in enough institutions that have done acquisitions and mergers to really understand the tremendous amount of infrastructure work that needs to be done to make those work as efficiently as possible, rather than just having something that that adds scale and numbers. And it really is the challenge of saying, you know, how do we efficiently and effectively look at our clinical programs, look at the outcomes, and really create that model and care path that leads to the value-based care that we're all seeking, right? Because I think at times we've struggled to show that by mergers and acquisitions, we've actually reduced the cost at the point of care. And eliminating redundancies and really reducing that variation takes a tremendous amount of work, really, 
at not only the system level, but down to the point of care and having in place teams that are really looking at that variation, working together, making the best decisions and input, and then having that willingness to go forward and standardize. So it is a very tall task to achieve. And I think as I look at our system, I think we've made a tremendous amount of progress in that area, but I still think we have so much more work ahead to do. And in relation to that specific question about, you know, the low volume programs, and I've worked in, you know, in the past now 25 years in two different states I've had experience in. And because of some of the different laws and regulations in each state, is it a certificate of need? Is it not? You will see proliferation in some areas in particularly very complex programs like solid organ transplant. And, you know, I'm going to say something that I learned from you actually 20 years ago when we were all working together as part of UHC, which then, as everyone knows, became Vizient. But on the data that we were all looking at and sharing, you used to say very often, you know, it comes down to this, practice makes perfect. You have to do a high enough number of these very complex cases to really get good at it, right? And we know that. And I think that's why when we look at these, you know, I'm a big proponent of standardizing and really scaling those types of patients to the centers of excellence where we can really demonstrate that we have not only the physicians taking care of the patient, but the whole team that is highly skilled in that to really not only reduce the cost, but to give the patient the best outcome. And I think, again, it takes a lot of fortitude to keep pushing that message forward because there's often, you know, resistance in a lot of areas. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's always easier for me being a visitor to a campus to to, to ask that question than it is for you guys that are yes. that are there. It makes me think, at your Monday morning staff meetings, you guys probably very regularly look at things like census and you'll look at uh, mortality statistics. I'm always struck by the fact that what we probably need is to have those teams start to put on their Monday morning agendas a measure of intrasystem variation and then kind of leave that session with an idea. You said something striking earlier measuring against yourself, not just benchmarking against someone across the country. Let's get us better by the time we get together next. And I, I think that might be just a little bit of a nudge while recognizing that it is heavy lifting on your part. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. I'd also like to come back and touch on some macroeconomic issues. One of the things that I think is pressuring hospitals, particularly uh, smaller community hospitals, to build or maintain these suboptimal uh, surgical programs in terms of volume. One of the things I think that's a pressure point for them is that they are so overly reliant on surgical revenue in order to float their enterprise that they feel compelled to be in certain lines of clinical work that might be better left to a larger center. Would you be comfortable coming back and having a second session with us where we could talk some more about some of those macroeconomic issues? Yes, that would be exciting, I think, to talk with you about, and especially with all the wisdom that you have in these areas. I'd love to do that. So thank you. Well, thanks. Now, before we break, however, I always like to ask a question that uh, listeners might never have thought to ask you or, or would be tickled to know. 
I know that you and I are both college athletic fans, and um, we all know the Rose Bowl. I've been to a couple of Rose Bowls. Everybody knows the Rose Bowl where UCLA plays, but I don't think everybody knows a lot about the University of Washington's setting uh, for college football. There are really, I think, only two places that I'm aware of, the University of Tennessee and and the University of Washington, where the fans can show up and tailgate on a boat. Can you talk about your past experience in the Naval Academy of uh, of Seattle? <laughs> yeah, well, certainly, I think a fun bonus of the, the jobs um, I've had, so previously at UW-Medicine and now at UCLA, is our college and universities both had fantastic enthusiasm about our football teams. And it was always really nice to see the work between medicine and athletics on really getting the name of the university out in front of the market. So yes, definitely 22 years at UW, I went to many, many football games at the beautiful Husky Stadium, which overlooks Lake Washington. And you're right. I think people take for granted if you grew up there that that's just where the stadium is. But the very first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. First of all, I think it's one of the most beautiful settings in the country on that lake. But to have people coming up on boats, having the tailgates on the boats, um, seeing what looks like a regatta on game day, I think just really added to the fun and enthusiasm. Certainly here at UCLA, the Rose Bowl is such an iconic institution in our community, even though it's in Pasadena, it takes us about an hour to get there. But it's something that I think is just so inspiring for people to be able to go there uh, for a day and really have fun and enjoy our UCLA football games. In fact, coming up on the big game, October 23rd against University of Oregon, UCLA Athletics is honoring all of our healthcare providers and has given us over 20,000 tickets so our healthcare providers can attend the game. So I'm so excited about that. Fantastic. I'm not sure we're going to come away with a win from the University of Oregon, but I'm hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be agnostic because Oregon's another member of ours. So, uh, yes, uh, you know, there is nothing like the Rose Bowl in terms of a setting with the mountains in the background. It's a fabulous place. Well, Jonies will join me next time, and I hope you'll be with us too. Thanks for listening. We hope you find these conversations thought provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.